I really had this need to connect properly, authentically and deeply with humans who came from very different geographical and, and political and spiritual and cultural background to me. Welcome to another episode of Diversity on Fire. The goal with this podcast is to inspire you to think more deeply, consider new perspectives, set fire to your negative bias, and rise from those ashes so we can all create a more informed and inclusive world together. We hope to achieve this goal by sharing and encouraging you to participate in our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. My guest today is Jem Fuller. Jem is the author of The Art of Conscious Communication for Thoughtful Men, a TEDx speaker, conscious communication coach, executive coach, among many other things, I'm sure. Welcome to the show, Jem. Hey, Anna. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You know, when I, can I just say, when I came across your podcast and read where you were coming from and what you were doing with this podcast, I, I almost jumped out of my seat. I'm like, I want to talk with this woman. I want to talk about this. I want to be on this show. You know, it's so close to my heart and I'm looking forward to exploring it with you. You know, but the, for me, the, the basic premise is that, you know, if we have a very narrow bandwidth in terms of the people sitting around a table to solve problems, then our, our, the, the, the bandwidth is narrow. We're only going to come up with a very thin slither of creative solutions to the big problems, right? But if we can get a more diverse range of people sitting around a table communicating with each other to solve the big problems, the bandwidth is way expanded, you know? And, and to me, it just seems so obvious that we need to be figuring out how to include a wide and a wide and diverse range of people at any table, whether you're talking about a business or an organization or a government, you know. And so I saw you talking about this and I was like, yes, please choose me. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's um I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think for probably a lot of reasons, diversity is oftentimes kind of put in a negative connotation when it because it feels like it means people have to work at something but the truth is i just i just find it beautiful i find it fascinating i find it beautiful i find it so i don't know i don't even know what word to put to it but just just fantastic and so i i appreciate yeah. that you appreciate it so we're definitely on the yeah. same page there yeah yeah speaking of i'm curious because of course we have the definition dictionary definition of diversity. Mm. Mm. I think we also all have our own definition in our own mind of what diversity means to us and how it's impacted us. So I feel like you might have kind of just told us a little bit about what it means to you, but how do you feel like diversity has impacted your life? Yeah. I Well, first of all, it's helped me understand what drove me in the younger chapters of my adult life so from the age of 18 through to my early 30s when I became a father and, and since then, but that in, most intensively through my 20s, I was just on an insatiable mission to travel to um, cultures and countries that were very different to where I grew up. You know, I traveled through, through pretty much all of my 20s, uh, but I wasn't interested in going to places that were similar to home. I really wanted to get to somewhere really different. And at the time, if you had have asked me, I would have just said that I was adventurous and I wanted to see the big wide world. And now 
as I, with the benefit of hindsight and with some retrospection, I can understand that really what was driving me was this cross-cultural connection need. You know, I really had this need to connect properly, authentically and deeply with humans who came from a very different geographical and, and political and spiritual and cultural background to me. You know, and, um, and so for me, diversity is about a, an open mind. You know, it's about learning perspectives that I could never have imagined unless somebody put it in front of me and said, this is the way I see the world. You know, that's what diversity is. And, and also, you know, for me, it's a, it's, it's kind of a, <laughs> I, I, for me, it's not fluffy, but I could understand how people could look at me and go, you're just being an old hippie and you're, you know, singing Kumbaya and lighting some incense because for me, we all are one, right? We are all of the same species and we are all on the same planet with the same resources. We just haven't figured out how to, how to get it together enough to make that work properly. But, but we are very literally and intrinsically, inseparably a part of the same greater system. And so for me, it's not so much of a woo-woo hippie concept. It's a literal, actual truth that we are all connected. And so I'm curious. I'm curious to, um, to learn other perspectives. So that's what diversity is for me anyway. I think it's amazing because that, that has been, um, my experience as well. Interestingly, we oftentimes hear people say that they're, in search of themselves, or they're trying to figure themselves out, or when, or or maybe they're not, and you ask them about themselves, and all of a sudden they can't speak to it because they haven't actually thought of it. And for me, I learn through others. So when I see someone thinking differently than me, it helps me better understand how and why I think the way I think, um, which is certainly intentional, right? You have to ask yourself those questions, but. Mm. I think it's I think it's fantastic. So your journey, I know very little, but from what I know, has been incredibly full and varied. So shall we say diverse? Um, yeah. yeah. But before we dive in too deep to to that, I wonder if you can kind of give us a little bit of insight on where it started. Like, so maybe your upbringing, where you grew up, your cultural background, religious background, family background, things like that. I think it helps us get an idea of where your perspective started. Yeah. Um, so my father was from Leeds in Yorkshire in, in England. And my mother is, um, when I say Australian, I don't mean um, Indige Australian, that's who I think of as the original Australians. Um, but she's um, six or seven generations of settled peoples in Australia, going back to Ireland and Scotland. So my, my, my ancestry is, you know, English, Irish and Scottish. I was born in Holland, in the Netherlands, because mum and dad happened to be there when I was born. Um, we spent a year overseas and then they moved to Melbourne, Australia. My dad um, grew up in the Uniting Church, so a Christian denomination, and my mum grew up in the Catholic Church, another Christian denomination. And I went to a Catholic school. I was brought up. We went to church every Sunday, so I was brought up um, in, in culturally and religiously in a Christian family. And I always thought it was ridiculous, ridiculous that there were Christian denominations back in the UK killing each other because one was Catholic and one was Protestant. I was like, that just doesn't make sense to me. 
um, you're both Christian. You know, the same with the, the Shiite and the Sunni Muslims, the extremists that would kill each other because they were different denominations of Islam. I was like, I still don't get it. Um, but I, I do understand now as a, as a 51 year old that humans are complex and crazy and quite often dysfunctional. <laughs> um, so yeah, I grew up crazy, perfectly apt description. Yeah. Um, so look, I grew up in, uh, in a very privileged, um, surrounding. I grew up in a, in a new suburb on the outskirts of Melbourne. So when I say new, um, mum and dad bought a house there. And I was surrounded by paddocks, you know, horses and um, and vineyards, and so it was it was rural at the time that we moved there. But then in my childhood, as I grew up, houses just went up everywhere. So by the end of my childhood, we were in a suburb. But in those twenty years of me growing up there, we started and we would ride motorbikes around in the paddocks, and there were horses, and it was a kind of a a rural lifestyle to begin with, but then a suburban lifestyle. Um, you know, I went to a middle class school. Uh, everything was quite middle class, you know, cookie cutter on the outside, you know. And then on the inside, there was the, the personal trauma that we go through, you know, as humans, we experience, um, you know, hard stuff and, and we personalize it and we, we create our beliefs around it. And it, it ends up being quite an interesting journey for, most humans, everyone's got their stories, right? You know, and um, one of the stories that was shaping for me when I was six years old, my father lost his temper and um, lost his temper physically with me and um, threw me around a room and hit me and all, you know, that, that sort of thing and really scared the hell out of me. Um, and that was a part of the formation of me as a child. I was a very sensitive boy, very sensitive. I would cry and I would feel emotions and I was... Uh, quite timid uh, as a boy, um, and that was hard for my father to get his head around because he thought I should be tough and strong and man up and not emotional. Having said that, I loved my father. We loved him, loved him, loved him, and he he died when he was 67 of a brain tumour, and, and he died with us all around his bedside and love, lots of love, and he loved us. He really did, so I was lucky like that. But also that was a traumatic relationship for me, the one with my dad. And then my best friend died when I was 18. He died on his motorbike. That shaped me. And then as soon as I finished high school, I took off. I just couldn't get far enough away um, from anything that was mainstream or conservative. So through my 20s, I was very alternative. I was, you know, lots of piercings and tattoos. And I was living in a squat in London. And, you know, I was kind of punk. I was anti-establishment. You know, I didn't want to have anything to do with the system. I really just wanted to rebel against the whole thing and I did. I was very rebellious through my twenties. Ended up as a tattooist and a fire dancer and a you know a kindergarten teacher in Taiwan and um you know a labourer and a volunteer in third world countries and you name it, all sorts of stuff. Um I'm giving you the dot point, I know my whole life you asked for it. And then in my early thirties fell in love and became a dad. And um and that started that chapter of my life and I was like, wow, I've got children. I need to be responsible. I need to <laughs> find a way to feed these little people and make them feel safe and put a roof over their heads and, um, you know, give them some consistency and some security. So I did that. I joined. I didn't know what to do for work. I didn't have any qualifications or any career. So I joined an international travel company and I spent a chapter with them and ended up in senior leadership, which was wonderful. 
uh, learned a lot, uh, discovered human behavioral profiling and NLP and uh, coaching and all of these modalities through senior leadership training and decided that's what I wanted to do. Uh, insert midlife crisis, lost my job, lost my home, lost my marriage, all of it. Um, started all over again with my two boys, single parenting, week on, week off, and started my coaching business. This was almost 10 years ago. And now I work as a senior leader coach. I have executive and senior leader clients across government departments and in the not-for-profit and private sectors. Um, my partner and I run retreats in the Himalaya in India and Bali and in the deserts of Australia. Uh, my book, my first book that was published a year ago, just won an award. So apparently I'm allowed to say I'm an award-winning author, which I find oh, yeah. funny, but that's that's cool. Um, I've just been over in LA in the States meeting my new agent, Scott Miller from Franklin Covey and his partner, Tony, have offered to represent me in the States as my literary and speaker agency. So I'm going to be spending more time in your part of the world. And um yeah, life's amazing. My boys are now 18 and 16. My partner's kids are 15 and 13. Uh, we're all blended and happy and we surf a lot. We live in the great outdoors and um, life's turning out pretty good. I love it. Okay. And all of that, all of that, which we'll touch on, but I got to rewind because yeah. I am in the States and you said paddock uh -huh. and I'm like, wait, <laughs> hold on. Can you define this uh, a little bit deeper? Because I yeah. think I can guess what you said, what you mean. But I love it. So a paddock is a field, but it's not where, it's not where farmers are growing anything. It's just a field with grass in it where horses hang out. Okay. Or so, cows or livestock. Or cows. Okay. Yeah. So pa we, know, we, okay, cool. So we would call it like a pasture. Okay. Yeah, a pasture. Okay. That's a that's a paddock. <laughs> <laughs> no, literally, yeah. this is the beauty of all things is like we uh -huh. all, we have and that's ah, I think that's the beauty of diversity or one one of the tiniest things. But yeah, we're using different language, but we're speaking of the same thing. And and we yeah. talk about religion. I feel deeply what you say about not understanding how people who seemingly should understand that they have the same fundamental beliefs can 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 really attack each other so deeply. And I don't think we're going to ever understand it because the world is wild yeah. and crazy, as you mentioned. But yeah. I think that's the, I think that's the beauty of being open-minded is having that yeah. ability to step a few clicks back and be yeah. able to acknowledge what other people I, for some reason can't. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's complex and there's also some simplicity in, in it on a behavioral level. You know, humans are primarily wired um, to be fearful. Yet at the same time, the research shows that um, under duress, we actually are kind. You know, so on a one-to-one -one level, so if, if it were you and I, um, your family and my family, and we were in a terrible situation, there was a flood or a fire, we are actually, naturally, we would seek to help each other. You know, if you if you and your family were stuck on the roof of your house and there was a flood, then I would be driven to get a boat and come and help you get off the roof of your house, right? That's what humans are like that when it's personal and in those situations. When it's macro and those people over there who I've never met, but those people over there who look different to me or 
worship differently to me or do this thing differently to me, then the, the ideas, the macro political ideas feed off our fear of difference. So people get mobilized from fear when it's not personal, you and me sitting down together, when it's macro, like those people over there and this is our tribe over here, we get mobilized by fear um, and we get sold on really bad ideas, you know. So there's there's the dichotomy, you know, there's the, the irony because when you actually sit people down in the same room together and break bread together and eat and um, get to know each other, people actually connect and feel empathy for each other deeply too and yeah it's it's what i've come to to understand more fully through all the conversations i've had is that it's really hard to try to break down those walls on a large scale we really have to start grassroots we have to start individual to individual um yeah so I want to ask you about your communication coaching and just the work you've done there. So you say conscious communication. Can you kind of define that for us and explain what you mean by conscious communication? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we if we really start at the simple definitions of each of those words, the word communication comes from the Latin noun communicatio, which means a sharing, and the Latin verb communicare, which means to make common. So communication itself is about making the idea or the feeling or the emotion common. It's an understanding, Uh, certainly not a telling. (laughs) Um, So that's communication. And then to be more conscious of anything is to be more aware of it. So the more conscious you are, the more aware you are. So conscious communication, my idea behind it is that we are more aware of the communication itself. You know, so when I'm more aware of the communication, i.e. all of the um, invested parties, all of the people, or whether it's people or whether you're communicating with yourself or whether you're communicating with nature or animals or whatever the whatever's involved in that communication, the more aware you are of it, the better you can be in your part of that communication, the more effectively you can listen, the more effectively you can understand, the more effectively you can share ideas. And it's interesting because as we practice kind of elevating above or or outside of our own ego, our own identification in the moment, which is very defensive and closed-minded, But when we elevate outside of that and not make it just about me, I'm making it about us, it can be a transcendental experience. It can be what people term as a spiritual experience. You can have a spiritual experience in communication when you really are vibrating as one of the greater good rather than just self. Okay, so I'm processing what you're saying right now because uh, I'm going to describe experiences that I've had. I would never have prior to this conversation, and you can correct me if I'm misidentifying, describe them as transcendental. But over the last couple of years, I've really come to, I say, I call it self-editing. So when I'm talking with somebody, I am aware of their behavior and reaction to what I'm saying, and also at the same time, what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. So it's this weird all this weird stuff that's going on in the background, right? That I'm, of course, not communicating directly to the person that I'm talking to. And I find it fascinating. It feels strange 
and super important at the same time. Is this what you mean when you're describing the consciousness of communication? Yeah, I think that yes. And and there's many levels to this. And we move between perspectives or levels of awareness constantly um, and very quickly. So there can be a moment when you're listening to someone and while you're listening to them, you are receiving what they're saying and you're assimilating that with your understanding of things. That's one level. There's a level where you might not really properly be listening because you think you know what they're saying. You're already, you're already coming up with your rebuttal or your point of view or your defensiveness and you, you, you're just waiting for a gap to jump in. So that's not very conscious communication. What you're talking about is, a, let's say, a higher vibration of consciousness where you are aware of the fact that you are in a conversation, in, a, in communication, and you're aware of their reactions and where they're at through all the visual cues and the auditory cues that you're getting and the energetic cues that we pick up on. And you're aware of yourself in that as well. So that's another level. And then there are moments where, and for me, they're just fleeting moments, but there are moments where you completely forget yourself in the communication with another person and you're listening to them so openly with nothing to defend that the two of you, it's almost like the two of you have a transcendental experience together. You know those moments? And your your own your own sense of identity, which is the illusion of duality, the illusion that I'm separate from my environment, which is normally there. That's the normal state that we're in, is the illusion that we're separate. That disappears for a second. And we say, I lost myself in the moment. You know, quite often it happens with lovers, <clears throat> you know, and especially when lovers are communicating through lovemaking, through sex, they can have moments where they forget that they were separate from each other. You know, this is a transcendental experience. But you can also have it in communication with um, a, a musician, an artist who's on stage making music and, and the communication between the, the musician on stage and the audience listening becomes symbiotic and people say i lost myself in the music when they say they lost their self what they're talking about is they forgot about this illusion that i'm separate from everything and they became one with everyone around them and the musician and the music and the vibration so this is the kind of experience that's possible through communication through conscious communication and i love this and i definitely have had experiences similar to what you're describing and my brain maybe it's very similar to a lot of people works in an interesting way um that i would say that i experience that and oftentimes i can wonder if the other person is experiencing it in the same way as i am right because we because it's that community thing we want to make sure if we're feeling it they're feeling it right so I'm curious because I believe certainly that two people can experience communication on that same level, right? And and it's not an acknowledged, like verbal acknowledgement that you're both experiencing that type of communication. Um, but I also believe that one person can be putting out that level of energy and the other person be completely blind to it. So in a, in a situation like that, how would the person that is experiencing that energy and really putting forth the effort, how would they move forward in that conversation, in, in your opinion? That's kind of a broad question, but... Yeah. You know, so let's let's say that there's two people 
um, in conversation with each other. And one of them is practicing mindfulness, i.e. being completely present. And they're not thinking about what they're cooking for dinner. They're not thinking about what time they've got to pick the kids up from school. They're not thinking about the next meeting they need to get to. They are completely present in that moment. So for them, they're experiencing conscious communication because they are mindful. Even if the other person's not, even if the other person's sitting there with our busy human brain that we, that we have and they're thinking about what am I going to say next or I've got to get to this meeting or, you know, is, is this other person really listening to me or they're like they're in their busy brain? Even for that person, they feel something. They feel heard. They feel seen and they might not be aware of what's actually been going on. But afterwards, they'll be talking to someone else and say, I really like that guy, Jem. I, something about him, I just, I really enjoyed my time with him. And they're not exactly sure why, but it's because I was giving them all of my attention, all of my presence. You know, when you, when you really give someone the gift of all of your listening, they relax into their sharing. They become more, it's easier for them to communicate. Because we're very, we're very perceptive, us humans. You know, if you're chatting with someone, if you're sharing a story with someone, you can sense whether they're really listening or not. They might be looking at you and nodding and smiling, but if they're thinking about something else, you pick up on it. And then you start to lose your, your mojo in the sharing. You start to stumble over your words and you feel a bit, eh. But if someone's really 100% there and giving you all of them as they listen, it just becomes so easy to share. When I think about this and when I start the question and I'm kind of thinking about this conversation about how we're showing up to a conversation and maybe not having that same reciprocation is I'm thinking about a specific scenario that I've experienced and um, in a work setting and other people have experienced it is knowing that you're showing up in the way that you want to show up because that's who you are and also knowing that the other person is not going to show up in the same way. Mm. And this leads me to another thing that you talk about, which is radical acceptance. It's something that is really interesting and important to me, and I think probably should be to everybody, frankly, because we hear, I'm generalizing, broad brush here, we hear a lot about this, this topic of we're wired for connection. Humans work in a systematic way within each other, right? We need other people, some version of that, right? But when other people aren't participating authentically, honestly, in the same way that you're participating, that breeds disconnection. And when I think of radical acceptance, I think of that as being the cure to that disconnection we feel because we don't need them anymore. Am I making sense? Am I thinking yeah. about it in the right way? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you are making sense. And you're inspiring um, through my listening to you, you're inspiring thoughts in me as well. And this is the symbiotic, this is, this is communication. And you, what you just said inspired thought in me of perhaps, and I don't know, I, I'm just thinking out loud, but perhaps if you come to a conversation open and authentic and prepared to listen and to drop your defenses and, and connect deeply, if you come like that, but with no expectations on how the other person should or shouldn't show up, none. And let's say the other person comes and they are um, disconnected, closed-minded, um, unwilling to be swayed in any, any way, 
and they come with that energy, then certainly the connection, the, the depth of the connection is less than it would be if you were both open. But if you are completely open and with no expectation, there will still be some connection. They will still feel something a little bit more special than if you just switched off and went, well, fine. If you're going to be like that, well, I'm not going to give you anything and I'm going to switch off as well. And that's when you get disconnect. When both parties just go, oh, meh, I'm just going to, that's when you get full disconnect. But if one person's trying to disconnect, but you come open-hearted, open-minded from a place of love, there'll be still some sort of connection, I reckon, you know, and even if they don't want it, they'll walk away feeling like something just happened, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it, though, is that I, I believe that. I believe that wholeheartedly. And there's also a piece of me that still wants to know for sure that it happened, right? Like we want yeah. the proof, but but we have to accept that we're not always going to get the proof. And oftentimes we're not because in yeah. order to have the conversations that we're talking about and, and, and in order to have the acceptance in ourselves and others that we're talking about, it's a very intentional act. Yeah. My, my experience um, is that, you know, as I've become better and better at approaching situations and some dangerous situations, completely coming from a place of love and open-heartedness and presence it has an it has an effect can i can i share a story with you absolutely please about this so in 1998 um i was on a public bus and i was coming over the karakoram highway from china down into pakistan and it was quite a, a volatile time because now this is in 1998 so before 911 and this is, for those who um, can't remember, that year um, there was a, a terrorist attack on the U.S. Embassy in Africa, one of them in Africa. And so as a retaliation, the United States government sent cruise missiles in to try and kill Osama bin Laden in Pakistan in 1998. And it was then that jihad was declared. It was on the front page of the newspapers. And I was sitting on a, on a public bus with a young university student who spoke some English and we connected and he showed me the front the newspaper and translated it um, from Urdu into English for me. Anyway, we were on this bus ride, and there was uh, there was me, and there the, then there were these two Japanese tourists, these two young boys from Japan. We were the only Westerners, well, Western Eastern. We were the only foreigners, and remote mountains, Karakoram Highway, you know, Hindu Kush mountains, Mujahideen, you know, Kalishnikovs proper and I had gone into Pakistan a month before and I had done my research I, I went to a tailor and I got traditional Pakistani shawar kameez made um, I learned to say assalamu alaikum I learned a few words of Urdu whenever I was going to someone else's country I'd make some effort to let them know that I acknowledged that I'm coming into their their place their home their culture you know these two Japanese boys had not done that. They were wearing singlet, tops, shorts, so bearing all their skin. And, <laughs> oh, dear, we I, I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know this, and I hadn't spoken to them. I didn't know this, but when we came over the border into Pakistan, next to the Welcome to Pakistan sign, they thought it was funny to take photos of each other 
pulling down their pants and bending over and mooning the camera next to the Welcome to Pakistan sign. Now, I didn't know this. I hadn't seen them doing this. I'm like, oh, God. Anyway, so then about two hours later, we the bus stops and we get off. It's a, it's a chai stop, a tea stop, and we're having cups of tea. And there's this, the, this mob of Pakistani, tribal Pakistani men armed, starting to surrounding these Japanese boys and starting to get really angry and shouting at them and becoming mob um, anger. And I didn't know what was going on. I was like, oh, wow, wow, whoa, whoa, what's going on? But they could have killed these two Japanese boys and thrown them off the cliff and no one would have ever found them. That's how remote we were. And I didn't even think. I just acted. I just went and stood in between the Japanese boys and the and the tribal men and I and doing my full coming from from love and, and chatting with them and talking and I managed to get them to pause just enough that the two Japanese boys I got them to go over to the bus, I got them out. And I somehow managed to appease these men. And that's when the university student came over to me and he told me what the Japanese boys had done. And with my broken Urdu, but full love, I managed to calm this group of men down. Um, and then I went over and had a chat with the Japanese boys. I'm like, what are you doing? You're not in Disneyland, right? This is tribal northern Pakistan mountains. Are you guys crazy? Put some clothes on. Like, show some respect. Oh, dear. Anyway, so they didn't die. But situations like that, and I've been in a few of them, where it was escalated and, and potentially violent and potentially deathly, but to be able to come in and deframe that situation with just an abundance of understanding and presence and and communication and coming from a place of love, it really does have an impact. I feel like that speaks so strongly to the the need to be seen, need to be understood, even in a in a land where you might not be understood, mm. or to be acknowledged. It, it feels so simple, doesn't it? <laughs> so yeah. hard for people yeah 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 it is i i think that fear is a reaction right so um, it's in our reptilian brain it's in the old part of our brain it's fear is a reaction so for example if you're walking through a forest and you hear a rustling in the leaves your first reaction is <gasps> snake so fear is a reaction love is a practice it, it takes some some more consciousness you know, if I see someone who's very different to me and my first reaction is fear of the difference, then it's a practice to go, hey, they're just another person. I'm going to come from a place of love. I'm going to open my heart and open my mind to this person, you know. So, yeah, it, it, it's a practice. But I, but we are evolving whether we like it or not. And And I know that the mainstream media would have us believe that it's actually getting worse and more divisive and, you know, left and right and pro-choice and pro-life and pro-vax and anti-vax and all of this stuff and the cancel culture and the woke movement and all of that. I get all of that's going on, but that's just what's presented to us through media. My experience of chatting with a lot of people, and I talk with a lot of people, most of us are good most of us do, most of us wake up in the morning just wanting to do the best we can do and live a good life and be nice and kind that's that's my experience i don't know about you it is it is my experience that when i approach individuals as individuals with my own open mindset that that is what i find 
and um, being in the U.S. and I can't speak to other countries and how their their situations are. That is how I have to move through life because yeah. if I don't move on an individual basis and I let any sort of other rhetoric or any sort of group mentality guide me, it gets ugly real quick. Yeah. <laughs> ugly real quick. Yeah. I'm hearing that. Yeah. I hear that from other people that I speak to and it's interesting. It's interesting times, isn't it? And and like you said, I, I think all we can really, not all we can do, but I think it's important for us to um, choose how we show up as a, as as an individual and as a part of a collective, you know, to whatever degree that is, whether it's you and your partner and your kids or your extended family or your community. Um, but just to be conscious about how we show up each day. And, you know, I, I, I know that people might hear me say this and go, oh, you sound like an old hippie. But I, I mean it very literally that choosing to show up coming from a place of love is just more functional. You, you just get better results. You, you live a better life. You live a much happier life, you know, and it's a choice. Yeah. But I hear you. I, I, I think, you know, if we get swept up in the, in the, you know, swept up in the, the big macro movement stuff, it can be pretty troublesome and worry, worrisome, you know. Very much so. So I wonder if you could share, because coming from your experience, which we, we haven't touched on a ton, you shared some, but you, I mean, you, you've referenced the hippie, you, you kind you explored so many different places. Uh, can we say like nomad of countries and just experience and putting yourself in these different situations. And then you moved yourself to the corporate worlds to, to seek more stability. And that for a lot of people is such a stark shift. So yeah. can you talk to that transition and how you were able to make that transition without losing any of the gains you made? by exploring the world. Mm. Oh, I lost it. I lost a lot. I became lost in that, that corporate thing as well. And I, and I forgot, I forgot a lot. Um, and it's funny, you know, my, my community who knew me before I went and got a, a suit and tie job, um, when they saw me wearing a shirt and tie, they had their jaws dropped. They're like, you're wearing a, a shirt and a tie. <laughs> you know, I'd been barefoot and dreadlocked wandering around Asia for years. <laughs> I mean, literally living outdoors and cooking on a fire. <laughs> uh, you know, and I was just doing what I thought I had to do to try and feed these kids, you know. Um, and then I got swept up in it and I, and I thought, well, I need to earn more money, so I need to get the promotion, so I need to be good at this. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've always been good with people. So if you're good with people, you can, you can do well in most things. Um, but if you're no good with people, it's, trickier but if you're good with people you can do well and I did well in this thing and I ended up becoming a manager and then I managed a few different shops and then I bought into my businesses and then I ended up becoming um, a senior leader with 150 staff and 15 different shops you know brick, brick and mortar travel agencies um, and you know lots of dollars on the spreadsheets and lots of pressure pressure to drive net profit growth quarter on quarter on quarter and if you're not if you're not growing your net profit you're you're in the firing line from from the above right so there's this pressure and you end up negating your values i did i ended up i ended up 
negating my values to try and be successful in and and deliver what I had to deliver. I also ended up drinking way too much alcohol when I wasn't working because that was the medication. And you're traveling the world and you're corporate and you're flying in business class and um, you're earning a lot of money and but your your marriage is starting to. This is I'm talking about myself. My marriage was starting to deteriorate and and I wanted to be a great dad, but I was I couldn't be that present for my kids. I mean, I was there as much as I could be. And I loved changing diapers and I loved bathing them and I loved telling them the stories to get them to bed at night. But then as soon as that was done, I was back on my laptop again and I was drinking wine to get through and then partying really hard. And and I lost myself, you know, because prior to that, I'd spent a couple of years, in inverted commas, to your listeners who are not watching us, finding myself, you know, spending a lot of time in contemplation and meditation mainly in India, but in places around there as well, finding myself. And I forgot most of it. I forgot most of it. I got swept up in this corporate thing and, and essentially was deeply unhappy, you know, and, and sadly um, the marriage went too far south and was irreparable. And, um, and it got to a point where I did. I had a midlife kind of, people say a midlife crisis. For me, it was a midlife awakening. And I remembered and I also realized this was in my early 40s. And I also realized that I'd been running this background belief that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't enough, you know, and that's where the imposter syndrome came from. That's where the, you know, the self sabotage came from. You know, when things were potentially becoming really successful, I sabotaged them because I didn't think I deserved the success or the happiness, you know. Um, and so I did. I had a, a midlife kind of crisis and lost my job. Um, we had to end the marriage. Uh, I was so far in debt that I, we had to sell our family home. I gave all of my belongings to my wife um, and left with 50-50 care of my kids who were only eight and six years old at the time, um, a surfboard and a guitar. That was it. And a lot of debt. I took all the debt with me. Um, and started all over again. And that was a really beautiful opportunity to repair my relationship with myself first and to change my belief, to literally brainwash myself into believing that I am enough, that I am good enough, and I do deserve happiness and success, whatever that looks like. You know, and I had to convince myself of that. And I did. It took time, but I did convince myself of that. And funnily enough, what you believe tends to show up, right? That's how you interpret the data from around you. It matches your belief. So once I believed I was enough, um, I started turning my life around. So many thoughts, so many thoughts. Mm-hmm. So I I feel like the story that you told speaks a lot to the idea of authenticity and the complexity of what that means. I've used this analogy before of... And, and I'm using this because of your your kind of definition of when you when you put on a suit and tie is like when I when I shower, I don't wear clothes, right? When I go to my client's office, I am clothed differently, but I am the same person in both scenarios. I'm just showing up and representing based on that, which is true, but there is an extent to that. And what you're describing is, and I think the way you put it is it gives us a really tangible idea. As you said, you lost your values along the way. So not only were you dressing differently, but your values changed. Um, 
I think it's just, it was such a great example of how complex that struggle with maintaining authenticity while also showing up for what the needs of life demand are. Also, I'm, I'm interested. You said, um, let me pause here to recalculate my thoughts. You mentioned that there was in the background the self-doubt running. Now, just speaking out loud to you, when I hear that, I think, wow, that's interesting because he seems to have been such a free spirit and, and kind of going along life in such a kind of a wonderful, self-fulfilling way. Where does the self-doubt come from? And have you, have you kind of dug into that to determine where that might have developed? Yeah. Um, look, it's, it's quite well spoken about and written about and understood um, in the psychology world that when we're little, there are three fears, three primary fears that little people have. What if I'm not enough? as in not enough for my mother and father to love me and nurture me and care for me? What if I'm not connected? So the fear of isolation. What if I'm not loved? And all three of those tie together as a survival fear, right? Out of all of the, all of the animals on the planet, we need our parents way longer than every other species. You know, we are, we are reliant <clears throat> on our caregivers for a long time. You know, if we were to put a three-year-old out on the street and nobody, nobody tended to that three-year-old wouldn't survive, you know. So we're very, very dependent. And so we need to be loved. We need to be connected. We need to be enough for our parents to want to do that. So it's understood that we have a fear when we're little. What if I'm not enough? And for a lot of us, that fear becomes a belief. So I think I've done a lot of thinking about my version of this. I think it was that time when my father lost his temper and, and I was really scared of him because the look in his eyes had changed. He had lost himself in his rage and he didn't, I mean, the physical stuff wasn't so bad. He didn't actually really physically hurt me, although he hit me and threw me around the room a, a bit, but it wasn't the physical, it was the psychological terror. And I think looking back now, that six-year-old boy felt like he wasn't good enough for his father because if I was good enough for him, he wouldn't have done that to me. That was the six-year-old version of this. Now, as a father of, you know, teenage boys and, and, and all of that, my compassion for my dad is ultimate. You know, he lost, he lost his temper um, and he didn't know how to be any better in that moment than he was. None of us, anybody in any given moment don't know how to do it any differently. Otherwise, we would. So there's, I, I'm not holding on to any um, negative resentment or, or anything towards my father, just love. But as a six-year-old, it's understandable that a six-year-old would go, I'm not good enough, not good enough for my father to love me and not hurt me and scare me. And so that little doubt of what, what if I'm not enough starts to become a belief. And then you start to filter information from the outside world to match your belief. So you start growing up and any time there's a little failure, like the time when I was in the, the finals of the springboard diving contest at school and it was down to me and one other diver and I was going to win the gold medal and I over-rotated and I landed on my back in front of the whole school. Because I had a, a burgeoning belief that I wasn't good enough, then subconsciously that is evidence. See, I knew I wasn't enough. I got the silver medal and I embarrassed myself in front of the whole school. 
you know. Or then when I was with girls as a teenage boy, that what, what if I'm not enough, you know. And when I lost my virginity with a, an older girl who was a few years older than me, I was so worried that was it, what if I'm not enough to do this? And it was actually a, quite a terrifying experience for me. You know, and so all these experiences through our life become evidence to that background belief. But I wasn't even aware that I had this belief. I didn't even know at the time, you know, and I had bravado. You know, I had this exterior of, yeah, I've got this. I've got it together. I'm all good. That was my veneer, you know. So, yes, we are complex creatures and, and, then, and then it shows up. And so people talk about the imposter syndrome. You know, you hear very successful or famous people say, sometimes I, I think is someone going to come and knock on my door and say, you don't deserve all this fame. You don't deserve to be a Hollywood star. You're just an average average Joe Blow. And they think, do I, is, is this all going to be taken away from me? That questioning of do I deserve this comes from this human fundamental thing of am, am I good enough? Am I enough? You know, what makes me so special? Um yeah, so it's not, I, I don't think it was very unique to me. And, and in fact, with thousands, now thousands and thousands of hours of coaching people, um, it shows up a lot. There are so many humans that are running this background racket of I'm not enough. Okay, everybody listen up. You're not alone. You are not yeah. alone. Yeah. Are you, I feel like we could talk about a lot more, but we do need to wrap it up. So are you ready for the final three questions? Yeah, sure. I could talk with you for hours. This is great. I mean, I, I, I agree. But it is, so we didn't even acknowledge this uh, on air here, but it's what, just kind of the start of your day. It is very yeah. much the end of mine. <laughs> yeah. So it's what, almost 11 a.m. your time now. Yeah, Friday morning, the yeah. next morning. So Friday I can morning. I can give you the good news and say that the uh, the sun comes up tomorrow. Perfect. And everything's still here. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, at least it does on your side of the world. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure yeah. it will. Yeah. All right. So the first one I like to ask guests to share is is a little bit of an action item. So what is something everyone listening today can do today? So something small that they'll actually be able to take action on right away that can help them become a better communicator or a more conscious communicator. Pause. Just find a moment in between two things that you're doing and pause and just focus on your breath for 10 seconds and then continue. I love that. That's so simple. Pause. Mm. Mm. Okay. Just pause. Jim, what are five words that you would use to describe yourself in your current phase of life? Kind, generous, loving, open-minded, as much as possible, trying to be open-minded, action-taking. Okay. Was that four or five? I can't that was remember. five. I always count. Good. I have a habit. Anytime someone <laughs> starts to go through things now, I always start to count. That was five. It was, and, and they're wonderful. They're very, they're very feeling um, and shall we say conscious words. Mm. So I mm. like them. Very good. And then where can people go to connect with you? Maybe to find your book, your award-winning book, and yeah. connect with you if they have coaching needs and learn more and just stay in touch in general. Follow me on Insta. That'd be great. Jem Fuller, just J-E-M-F-U-L-L-E-R. Um, and I share a lot of content on there. And then from Insta, you'll find my link tree and then you can find everything from there. My TEDx talk, 
my book, my website, um, all that kind of stuff. But I'm I'm pretty accessible. If you if you're up for a conversation and you want to find out more, um, just DM me through Insta and we'll start talking. All right. Awesome. Everyone connect on Instagram and find the link tray. I appreciate this conversation so much as we both agree. We could probably keep going forever, but I just want to say one final thought. Again, I appreciate you. Thank you for being vulnerable and thank you for doing the work you're doing. It is very important. Thank you so much, Heather. You're welcome. Welcome back. Happy New Year. 2023 is upon us. I appreciate you listening in today. I hope this conversation with Jem sparked some ideas in your own mind as it did with mine. He's such an interesting guy. And this conversation literally barely scratched the surface on the stories this man has to tell and the knowledge and wisdom he has to share. So please don't forget to check the show notes and uh, follow him for more information and to keep in touch and to learn more. Don't forget the thoughts and opinions that we both expressed on today's episode, they're our own. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions for yourself personally. Connect with Diversity on Fire on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Diversity on Fire. I would very much appreciate your love and support via a five-star rating and review. If you're enjoying this show, it does really help reach, and I'm hoping 2023 is going to be a year of exponential growth so that we can share these conversations with more people. On that same note, don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Share the conversation with others that you know so they can join as well. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going. Mm-hmm.